As you can see above me, that this evening we're going to start looking at the short book of Jonah. Uh, of all the, the minor prophets that we have in the Bible, the minor prophetic books, Jonah is certainly the most well-known of, of the group. It's the one that has a bunch of narrative in it, so we tend to look there and read it more often. We enjoy it more than we do most of the other minor prophets that we don't understand it as well. I, I decided that we would look at this. Um, when it comes to Jonah, let me ask you, what is the first thing that comes to mind when you think of the book? The whale, the fish, the, the whale, the fish, right? The, the big fish. That is what most of us will immediately think of when we think of the book of Jonah. Even as I was looking for background slides from the company that I get most of our slide backgrounds from, they almost all had a big fish of some sort on, on the slide backgrounds that they offered for the book of Jonah. We, we probably don't realize it, but the fish is only mentioned in two verses in the entire book as far as doing something. It's mentioned one other time as the, the place from which Jonah acts, so we have a total of three mentions in the whole book of, of the fish, and yet that is what we think of. Well, the fish really is a minimal interest to the author of the book of Jonah. The, the point of the book lies somewhere else. So this evening I'm going to begin a four-part series through the book of Jonah. Uh, I decided to skip over a regular family night, uh, spiritual family night service this evening so that Lord willing, we can cover all four of these sermons in one set without interruptions between now and Christmas before we have to take several weeks off for Christmas and the New Year's. We'll, we'll get this series in. As you can see above me, the, the first chapter has to do with fleeing, or at least attempted flight. I, I'm assuming that most of us know the story of Jonah fairly well, so the big sketch of what's happening you're aware of. We all probably have things that we flee from. For, for me, snakes is one of those. I, I have this phobia of snakes. I, I just instinctively want to flee when a snake is around. I have a quick flight response. Um, I, I'm more mature now than I was when I was a kid. When I was a kid, if I saw a snake, I would run as fast as I could. Well, now I'm a little more mature. I can um, overcome my instinct a little bit, especially if I know that the snake is like behind glass at, the, at the, the zoo. I can restrain myself from fleeing. I can maybe even walk up to the glass and look at the snake. With sufficient effort, I can resist my flight instinct, but, but it's still strong. If I know there's a snake nearby, even if I know it's harmless, I have to really work not to run the other way. There's another thing that I know I've mentioned this before that the kids and I had learned to flee from, and that was whenever Grace called out for help when it came time to pick paint colors in a room. My wife is great at many things, including picking paint colors. She's very good at it. But, but the process which she goes through when it comes to selecting a color involves a lot of second and third guessing every decision made, and the kids and I, we, we just learn to flee whenever possible. We, we learn to flee things. What is it that you flee? Do you flee from God? Do you try to flee from his will for your life? Do, do you try to avoid the providential plan that God has for you? Maybe at times you, you even try to flee from God himself. You're so unhappy that, that you try to escape entirely the, the presence of God in your life. That, of course, is what we find Jonah doing in the first chapter of the book this evening. 
We don't know anything about the author of the book, unless the author is Jonah himself, but that's unlikely based on the way the book ends. We have no idea who wrote the book, but we do know something about the main character of the book. We know something about Jonah. Most of what we learn from Jonah begins with the first verse of the book. We, we see in the very first book that it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... Well, in 2 Kings 14.25, we have a, a prophet mentioned by the same name. In 2 Kings 14.25, we read, He, and that he there is Jeroboam II, he restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was of Gath-hefer. So we know that there's a Jonah, a son of Amittai that, that prophesied during the, the rule of Jeroboam II. He's the king of, nor, of the northern kingdom of Israel, one of the kings. And assuming that these Jonas are the same Jonas, that, that the Jonah of Second King and the Jonah of our book is the same man, this would put Jonah's ministry somewhere between the years of 782, 81 BC, somewhere there is where Jeroboam II the, the took over his reign of Israel, to 753 BC, somewhere in that range. That's when Jeroboam reigned, so jo Jonah would come in that same time frame. That, that would make Jonah a, a loose contemporary of pr the prophets Amos and Hosea because they also ministered during the, the time of Jeroboam II. Whether Jonah came before those prophets or after those prophets, that, that's unknown. But we know that much about him. We, we can place him historically in this time frame. My, my plan this evening is to work our way through the, the first chapter of Jonah in stages. Uh, most likely, as we work our way through, I won't follow any of the paragraph divisions that you have in your Bibles. What I want us to see tonight is how carefully this unknown author of ours constructed this book so that this chapter hinges on a couple key verses in the middle. I think we follow his structural arrangement around the themes that, that will help us see the, the core lesson that, that's contained here for us in the verses we're looking at this evening. So our author gives us minimal details. He, he provides minimal details tonight, but, but he gives us enough so that we're able to grasp immediately what's happening. That the record begins, first of all, with the Lord's command. The Lord commands. He, he speaks first in verse 2. The word of the Lord, we said in verse 1, came to Jonah. The Lord says in verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. The Lord here speaks with a double imperative, a, a twofold command, Arise, go. Now God's used that same double imperative other times, like when he sent Elijah on assignments in 1 Kings 17, 9, and 21, 8, when, when Elijah was sent out of the country and then when he was told to go meet King Ahab, God said, arise, go. Those, those double imperatives like that, they, they carry a, a sense of urgency. They, they, they expect a, a prompt reaction. They, they, there's an expectation that, that the one who receives the word of God will, will respond immediately. Well, in Jonah's case, the, the brief command that he's given here is that he should go preach against the city of Nineveh, which is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Assyria was a wicked empire. 
The, the, the message that, that Jonah was, was to carry here was about their wickedness. He's uh, preach, uh, to preach against them because their wickedness had come before God. In other words, their wickedness had God's attention. There's nothing in the message that Jonah's given here about re- calling for their repentance. It's simply a pronouncement that the God is angered by the wickedness of the people of Nineveh. Well, if we put Jonah in the historical context that we know, we, we know that he lived during time when the, <coughs> excuse me, the northern kingdom of Israel, Israel was prosperous. Um, it was a good time for them. But it was also a time when Israel was very sinful. Their prosperity had led to all sorts of wickedness within Israel. And, and God is beginning to send prophets against the northern kingdom to, to pronounce judgment. Eventually, Hosea will come, and Hosea declares that God's going to use the wicked Assyrians as his hammer, as instrument of judgment upon the nation of Israel. In 722 BC, that happens. Assyria comes and, and destroys Israel and takes the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity. And Hosea says specifically it will be Assyria that does this. Now, it's possible Jonah could be as much as 50 years or so before the fall of Israel happens. We, we don't know if the time, by the time Jonah receives this message, if Hosea has already come on scene and named Assyria as God's instrument or not. Um, we do know that at this point in history, Assyria itself is, is at a, a low point in their empire. It, it's unusual to see Assyria referred to as they are here simply as Nineveh, the, the great city. But it's quite fitting for this period uh, in the history of the Assyrian Empire. This is likely the time when the ruler of Nineveh exerted basically control only over Nineveh and the surrounding region. Most of the provinces of the empire at this stage of Assyria had largely broken away. from uh, the, the empire of Assyria had been very huge, very massive, but Weak rulers had come, and in the provinces started exercising self-independence. They, they were officially part of Assyria, but they really weren't paying much attention to, to the king of the empire for a period. It's likely that the ruler really only had direct control over Nineveh. It, it will be a few years yet uh, from this point in history before a new ruler will arise in Nineveh, and he will be a great ruler and regather all the the, the provinces under a very strong hand. He'll rebuild the empire to a level where it's able to come along and cause Israel's demise. Still, the Syrians have been troublesome to Israel for decades. So whether or not Jonah knew that God had promised to use the Syrians as the means to bring judgment upon Israel, it is reasonable to, to suspect that an Israelite would be much happier with Ninevite, Nineveh's destruction than with its ongoing survival. Well, Jonah's commanded here by God to go to Nineveh and announce their judgment. Cry against the city. Now, I anticipate most of you know the rest of the story. So, so you know Nineveh eventually repents. In fact, we learn in chapter 4 that Jonah's reason for having fear at the beginning is that he's afraid people of Nineveh will repent and that, that God will hold off destroying them. So he is an Israelite that wants to see their demise. I want you to notice is that we're not told any of this now at this point. We need to force ourselves to read the story of Jonah the way the author gives it to us. And and our author leaves out 
all that information about Nineveh and Assyria and where they fit into the role of Israel, Jonah's fear is left out now as our author records next the response to the command. The Lord's given this brief command, and in verse 3 we have Jonah's response. Remember, arise, go means you need to respond immediately. Verse 3, but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship that was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. God called for immediate response, and Jonah gave an immediate response. The problem was that his response was response of disobedience rather than obedience. Rather than doing what God had called him to do, it's clear that Jonah had no intention whatsoever of ever doing what God called him to do. Assuming, again, that Jonah is the same prophet that, that we know by the name of Jonah, the son of Amittai in 2 Kings 14, we know that there has been a time where Jonah has been faithful to what God's called him to do. Jonah delivered the word of the Lord to the, the king of Israel. He, he had, but that time, Jonah was given good news to deliver. He, he was to take to the king of Israel God's promise that he was going to expand the borders of Israel, and Jonah was willing to do that. He was called to bring good news to Israel and was obedient in doing that. Now, though, he's disobedient. He immediately goes in the exact opposite direction. The, the location of Tarshish is not known with absolute, absolute confidence. You may be aware of that, but, but most likely it's a place in Spain, somewhere near the entrance of the Atlantic from the Mediterranean Sea. So from Jonah's perspective, sitting in northern Israel at this time, Tarshish, this city would represent the, the end of the world as far as, as he's concerned, as far as he could possibly flee in the opposite direction of where Nineveh lies. He is going the other way. Again, we have to wait until chapter 4 to, to learn why. Why Jonah did this. We're, we're not told the why here, but we are told that he took steps at great personal cost. Jonah paid the fare personally to take a ship from Joppa. Joppa is most likely the near seaport to Jonah's home in Israel. Jonah paid the fare personally to Tarshish. Well, to get to the very ends of the, the earth is not a cheap endeavor. Even today, if you're going to go to the other side of the planet, it's going to cost you some money, especially if you're going with, with enough to survive there. One, one, in Jonah's day, one would have the impression that Jonah is leaving Israel with no expectation that he will ever return. Jonah would rather leave his homeland, likely forever, than, than to do what God has called him to do. Now, I'm guessing that, that we likely cannot quite relate to fleeing in the fashion that Jonah did. None of us have ever had a command from God and decided to jump on an airplane and go to the other side of the world to avoid what God is doing. But, but if we cannot relate to, to the, the details of Jonah's flight, um, we can probably at the very least relate to the spirit of his flight. If we cannot relate to the spirit of his flight, then we're probably not thinking very hard. Surely there have been times in all of our lives that, that we realize that God desires a certain response from us based on his word. There, there's something that, that God would have us do that is something we desperately do not want to do. Maybe it's a need to forgive someone. 
Maybe it's a task of confronting someone. Maybe it's simple prodding by the Holy Spirit in our minds to share the gospel with someone. Maybe it's giving up a long, favored, sinful habit. Whatever it is, we would rather do most anything else than what God wants us to do. We really shouldn't have stretched our imaginations very hard to, to find that we resonate at least somewhat with Jonah's response to God's demand. This, this response of, I want to flee from what God has called me to do. Let's move on to the next several verses where a crisis develops. We, we have the, the crisis of the storm. Verse 4. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. The sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. And they threw the cargo, which was in the ship, into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen asleep. Fallen sound asleep, we're told. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? In in verse 4, our author emphasizes that that the storm that, that Jonah's ship encounters has a divine origin. Certainly, we, we understand that, that God controls all things. If we don't understand that, I'll just have Cheryl come up and tell you about providence one more time, and you'll get that message. We, we know that God controls all things. So there's a sense in which every storm that comes about ultimately has divine origin. Still, most of the time, God uses this natural pattern of nature to produce storms. We call that providence. He accomplishes his purposes through natural means. That's not the case here. The first word of verse 4 is the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind at the sea. We have the picture of God grabbing wind, much as we might scoop up some snow and make a snowball. And then he takes and throws it with great force at the sea. The result of God hurling the wind at the sea is this great storm that strikes the ship that Jonah's embarked on. In fact, the sailors picture God's action by, or they, they, they give us a picture of God's action because they do the same thing. God hurled the wind at the storm, and their response is they hurl their cargo into the sea. The same word that we have as through in verse 7 is the word hurled in verse 4. God hurls the wind, the sailors hurl the cargo. I mentioned at the beginning of the night that the great fish only shows up in three verses throughout the book. Well, the storm shows up in significantly more verses than the fish. In a lot of ways, the storm functions as a more significant character in in the story than the fish. Yet the storm, too, really remains in the background of the author's focus. Instead, our author focuses on the sailors aboard the ship. The the sailors are clearly pagans. When when the ship ends up in danger from the storm, we, we read that each one cried out to his God. That, that, that means that the palers are, or the sailors are, or most the pagan sailors, is what I'm trying to say, the 
the palers. The, the pagan sailors are most likely from various nations, so they, they cried out to each of their gods. Each nation had their own false god, and, and they cried out to the idols of their nation, the false gods of their own nations. We're told that detail in verse 5. So we really don't have high expectations for these sailors. We know they're idolaters. Yet our author goes on to deliberately contrast their actions favorably against the actions of Jonah. Even as we meet the sailors for the first time in, in verse 5, we, we meet them crying out to their, their false deities, crying out for deliverance, while in contrast, Jonah, the, the, the prophet of the true and living God, Jonah is silently sleeping in the hold of the ship. He, he's oblivious to all the danger that, that's being faced. The, the pagans, even though they're, they're certainly misguided in, in the direction of their entreaties, they're, they're presented as taking more appropriate, even more righteous actions than Jonah as, as they engage in, in entreating the deities. Where Jonah's silent. I also want us to think about the irony of verse 6. The, the captain, again, a, a pagan captain, pagan completely, the, the pagan captain, he goes down into the hold of the ship and he wakes Jonah up and tells Jonah to do what? Call on your God. Remember, Jonah's on the ship because he's fleeing from God. According to verse 3 specifically, he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Now God has arranged for a pagan to tell Jonah to call on him. To, to enter the Lord's presence in, in treating him for deliverance. It, it seems as if, it take, as if taking a ship in the opposite direction from, from where he was sent is insufficient to allow Jonah to escape the presence of the Lord, doesn't it? God uses this pagan to tell him to enter his presence again. God has arranged for Jonah to have a reason to seek him. He, and even if the coercion to, to seek God must come through the mouth of a pagan ship captain, that's what Jonah's pushed toward to do. In fact, the captain goes and, and uses the exact same words that, that God used for Jonah in, in verse 2. The, the word that we have translated in verse 6 is get up. That, that's the same word as God speaks first in verse 2, arise. The, the word call in verse 6 is the same word as used by God when he commands Jonah in verse 2 to cry against the city. If Jonah won't arise and cry against Nineveh, then God will arrange for Jonah to arise and cry to him. The sailors, they, they decide to cast lots, determine who's behind this calamity, verse 7, that, that struck them. Here's another echo of verse 2. That, that word calamity is the same word as wickedness in, in verse 2. It's a word that simply means evil. It's a Hebrew word that means evil. Evil can come through natural events or it can come through moral wickedness. And we, we have to let the context determine which type of evil it is in any given instance. Well, our author seems to be using this ambiguity so he can create a, another comparison here. The, the sailors are concerned with determining the source of evil by causing their, their pending destruction. By contrast, Jonah is unconcerned with identifying the source of evil that's caused the pending destruction of Nineveh. He was told to tell them that their evil was causing their destruction, but he didn't do so. 
It is no surprise to us that Jonah singled out as the source of the troubles when they, they cast lots. Proverbs 16.33 says the lots capped in the lap, the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. We have no surprise whatsoever when we read this and we learn that the Lord shows that Jonah is the culprit. He shows the sailors through the lot that Jonah is at the core of what's happening here. And immediately, the, the men pose these rapid-fire questions in verse Verse 8, their, their lives are endangered. The, these hardened sailors, these seafaring men, they, they know that their ship cannot withstand much more of this mighty storm. They're, they're terrified and, and they want to know why. Why is this happening? And that brings us to the central verses of this chapter. As I mentioned at the outset, the, the author, he's carefully arranged things so that the entire chapter pivots on the next two verses. The, the revelation that we have from the storm. The revelation from the storm. He, being Jonah, said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew they was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. It's clear from verse 10 that, that verse 9 only records a, a portion of Jonah's reply. He, he's told them more than what's given to us there in the quotation. Yet, yet the portion of what Jonah said it makes it equally clear that Jonah leaves no doubt that, that the Lord his God is responsible for the, the present crisis. Jonah names his God for the men. Remember, these men worship all kinds of false deities. Jonah names his God for them. This is Yahweh, the, the God who we have given to us, capital L-O-R-D, the Hebrew name Yahweh, the, his God. The God of the Hebrews is his God, but more significantly, this is the God who made the sea and the dry land. This is the ultimate God, the creator God. At this point, Jonah does not confront their, their false polytheism that they have. He, he, but he does make it clear that his God is the ultimate God. And he does that in as few of words as possible. I serve Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. The pagan settlers, they, they hear this and immediately are extremely frightened. Here's another little bit of irony from our author. Jonah's just stated that he fears the Lord God of heaven. We, we cannot help but wonder how much he fears God when he's intentionally run from God's presence. Yet as soon as these pagans hear of God from Jonah, they respond with extreme fear. They ask, how can you do this? That, that question shows their horror at the thought that, that Jonah has offended the creator of the seas. How can you do this? We also have the, very, the third occurrence of the phrase here in verse 10, from the presence of the Lord. That, that repetition of the phrase but three times in, in these ten verses, that, that repetition should cause us to... Notice it. It should catch our ear by this point when it's coming up so often. That the way our author here places this verse, places it here in verse 10, it almost causes us to apply the, the sailor's question to this idea. How could you do this? Flee from the presence of the Lord. 
The author puts it there so we almost wonder, how could you flee from the presence of the Lord, the, the God who's made the sea and the dry land, how could you try to flee from him? The author plants that thought by the way he words things here carefully for us. Jonah's role in the storm has been revealed. It's the center of the narrative here in chapter 1. Now, as we begin to balance out the sections, we, we have the resolution to the storm. Picking up in verse 11. So they, the sailors, said to him, What should we do for you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Since Jonah knows that, that God has caused the storm, and, and since God has brought it about because of Jonah's action, the sailors turned to Jonah for advice. Seems reasonable. He's the one who understands this God, the true God, the God, the creator God here. Jonah tells them that the only resolution possible is to throw him overboard. Once more, his words are reminiscent of earlier phrases. His words now are reminiscent of verses 4 and 5 as he uses that same word hurl again. Here for throw him in verse 12. God hurls the, the wind at the sea. The sailors hurl their cargo into the sea. Jonah says, hurl me in there too. Jonah's resigned himself to his fate. He cannot escape God, but we still see no signs of remorse. We see no indication of repentance. No sign of, of sorrow over fleeing from the Lord in disobedience. He just says, hurl me into the sea as well. Once more, in comparison to the pagan sailors, um, they come out, at, when you compare Jonah and the pagans, the pagan sailors are the ones who come out honorable. Jonah has shown no concern at all for the loss of life that's pending in Nineveh. He, he's not even shown concern for his own pending loss of life. Just He's accepted it. Throw me in the sea and, and that will take care of things. Yet now we find the sailors, they care about life. They make a valiant effort to try to get the ship to shore so that they can avoid throwing Jonah overboard. They value his life. Of course, there, there is no thwart in God. No matter how hard the sailors row, the storm only grows angrier. It's as if the storm's a living creature. It gets angrier. At last, they, they see no recourse but to do what Jonah instructed. Still, before they do, the, the sailors call on the Lord in verse 5, they, they called out to their various gods. Now they call out specifically to Yahweh. Verse 14, notice the capital L-O-R-D. They're using the name of God that Jonah has supplied for them. The creator God, the one who created the sea and the dry land, Yahweh, the God of, of, of the Hebrews, that's who they're calling on. They, they call on him. To this point, as far as recorded at least, Jonah remains prayerless. The sailors, by contrast, they engage in earnest prayer to God, a God that they have just encountered. Furthermore, they, they have encountered this God and 
sufficiently where they recognize his absolute sovereignty. You, O Lord, have done as you pleased. In other words, you, O Lord, are sovereign over all things. Having acknowledged that this is God's design for Jonah, the sailors pick him up and they toss him over the side into the raging sea. As we might expect, that the moment Jonah sinks beneath the waves, the, the waves cease. The, the storm is over instantly. That brings us to the response to the storm. Verse 16. Then the men, that's the sailors, feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Again, the sailors' fear is stressed. But this time it's their fear of the Lord that is emphasized. A literal translation of the verse would be along the lines of the men feared the Lord, and it'd be Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D. They, they feared Yahweh with a great fear. When the storm arose, the, the sailors did not know the Lord. Now as the storm abates, they're, they're familiar with his identity. And our author makes clear by, by using this personal game, name of God twice in this verse, they know Yahweh, the, the, the God of the Hebrews, the God who's the creator, they know him and they fear him. They offer sacrifices to him with whatever remained on the ship and they make vows of some sort that they can fulfill when they reach land, further vows to, to worship him. We've not seen any change in Jonah, but the pagan sailors are awed by the, the power of the sovereign God. Again, a comparison where they come out on top. In the final verse that we have tonight, we have the Lord act. The Lord acts. The Lord was not yet finished with Jonah. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. The Lord was not yet finished. Jonah was thrown into the middle of the sea in a raging storm. We would expect that to be certain death. But God uses a great fish to rescue him from a watery grave. Our author, again, leaves no doubt that God is responsible for Jonah's survival. The Lord appointed. That, that word appointed is used three more times in, in this book. In every case, that word appoints to the Lord's power to accomplish his will through elements of his creation. The word of God commands his creation to respond so the world, we're shown four times in this book, responds, the created items in the world like this fish respond to God's direction. Even if Jonah does not yet do so. This fish does exactly as he's appointed to do. One thing that we should note is that the account of Jonah's unique record here, or his unique rescue, is recorded in the most mundane manner possible. The, the Hebrew words really are, are no more specific than our English translation, great fish. The, the, the Hebrew word that's used for fish is a general word that can refer to any kind of aqua, aquatic creature. And then it's modified with the adjective great. So some great fishy thing, that fishy creature, that's, that's all, all we're told by the words. Likewise, the, the description that, that Jonah stays in this fish for three days and three nights, it, it really only gives us the length of time. There, there's no further elaboration. Yes, this is a miracle. That, that is without doubt. 
But the focus is not on the miracle. We're told nothing about all the details of the miracle, how he survives in this fish, any details about the fish, where the fish goes, anything of that nature. The focus is not on the miracle. It's on the God who works miracles. So as we wrap up tonight, we need to ask ourselves, what is the core lesson from from these verses? The, The focus of this first chapter of Jonah is on Jonah's totally unsuccessful attempt to to flee from the presence of the Lord. That that means that our core lesson should come from the same idea. The the way I express it is the way you see there. We cannot flee from the Lord's presence in our lives. That's the way I'd express it. No no matter how much we might try, we will fail just as Jonah did. We, We cannot flee from the Lord's presence in our lives. Certainly this is not a new idea. David learned this lesson, and David relayed it all the way back in Psalm 139, verse 7. David says, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? In other words, there is no place I can go where you cannot find me, God. Well, David wrote that verse long before Jonah came around. Yet it was a lesson that Jonah had to learn for himself. Jonah failed to learn from David's wisdom question I have for all of us is, are we failing to learn from David and Jonah? There, there's not a lot of specific applications in, in the text tonight. But there is this fundamental core lesson that applies to all of life. And as I said in verse 3, it likely should not be hard for us to resonate with Jonah's response to God's command. There are a lot of things that God wants us to do, that God shows us we ought to do, that we do not want to do. There's a lot of things that we fear. Sometimes we fear what might happen if we do what God wants us to do. We, we fear that we'll lose some of our sinful, and we even know it's sinful, we'll lose some of our sinful independence. We, we fear that we might have to repent of sins we've committed. We fear that there might be some unknown future that, that comes when we place ourselves totally, completely in God's hands. We fear And then we attempt to flee. But it does not work. It does not work. The Lord will accomplish his will. The Lord will work in us and through us as he sees fit. We cannot avoid him. We cannot ignore him. Really all we can do is experience the hardships, the calamities, the the frustrations, all the hazards that come from our, our foolish and futile attempts to flee from him. The Lord always has a big enough four by four to whomp us over the head to get our attention. We need to learn this lesson from Jonah. We cannot flee from the Lord's presence in our lives. We looked at the first 17 verses in this short book this evening. And this is the lesson that we need to take away. We cannot flee from the Lord's presence in our lives. Let's pray. Father, I pray that tonight you would help us to take this general lesson and apply it to our lives, to learn from the the story here of Jonah, to learn from the mistake of Jonah, the foolishness of Jonah, and to avoid such foolish mistakes of our own. May we be men and women that rather than flee from you, joyfully, immediately 
urgently even obey you. We know that it's as we do that that we will be magnifying our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.